following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at 10.15 or check us out at DeeringChristian.org. Okay, well, I was told a number of weeks ago, you might have noticed that, that the way I started the sermons kind of changed a little bit. Um, I kind of got on a roll. I don't know, do you, you ever get, you get, you get in a habit or maybe a, my, my wife might call it a rut of doing things one particular way. Um, and, and she said, okay, you know the hand-raising um, the, the hand raising surveys at the beginning of the service, uh, we've had enough of that. Okay. <laughs> she said it very, very tactfully, kind of, and, um, and said, I said, okay, message sent, not going to do that anymore. I, I don't know if, 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 if your spouse has helped you in those ways. I'm sure that you, and I see you looking at your spouse right now, like, oh, I know what that's about. Okay, so I am not going to ask you to raise your hand today, but I do have a question for you. So keep your, keep your hand down, Zed, you're going to get me in trouble, all right? And this is the question. Are you a turbocharged subject changer? Okay, I'll try to, I'll repeat that, I'll repeat that, turbocharged, turbocharged. Are you a turbocharged subject changer? Are you, you know, I have been, I see people pointing, Laverta's pointing to Melvin. I don't know, Melvin. Uh, and I, if I was looking around, I would see others doing quite the same thing. I have been accused of that. I've been accused of doing that in sermons, believe it or not, or in teaching settings. Um, some people call it chasing squirrels. Some people call it being a turbocharged, turbocharged subject changer, all right? So I have been accused of that, but I've also been the victim of a turbocharged subject changer before. All right, and I'll give you a little bit of example of what that looks like. You're having a nice conversation with someone. Um, you ha- you you have no idea where this is going because that's how a turbocharged subject changer works. Okay, and you're just having this nice conversation. It's a little something like this. You're having a nice conversation about weekend weather. I mean, wasn't yesterday nice? Yesterday was beautiful. I mean, the sun came out, gave us a little bit of a picture of what spring's like, and you're just having a nice, pleasant conversation. And then and then the turbocharged subject changer says, "Uh, yeah, you know what? I think I'm gonna have to shoot my neighbor." And you're, you're, first of all, you're a little, you're like, okay, are you being serious here? Do I need to make a phone call? Do we need to have an intervention right here? And then the next place your mind goes when you realize, hopefully they're not serious, where did that come from? Like, where in the world did that enter your mind and somewhere in that mind make it think that that's where I wanted to go with this conversation, okay? You have just been victimized by a turbocharged subject changer, all right? And it happens quite often. And guess what? It happens in the Bible. It absolutely happens in the Bible at times. Um, last week, J.B. came, and he, he actually sat, brought, a, brought a, you know, kind of a, a podium thing, kind of sat behind it and, and preached the message. We didn't have service last week, um, but we streamed that service out. And I hope you had the opportunity to see that. If you did not, it is on our website through podcast, just the audio um, or also through the podcast uh, 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 app. That's what I was looking for, okay? Um, and you can find that. Um, last week, he went through Daniel chapter 4. And basically, in Daniel chapter 4, what you find is King Nebu, all right, King Nebuchadnezzar, he, um, he is playing the role of a cow in a seven-year play directed by God, okay? And this really, really happened. And, and through that process, he was humbled. He, he was transformed. He was changed. He, had a, he, he developed a repentant heart, eating grass, looking like a cow for seven years. We can do that to you, all right? And what J.B. drew from that very, very well, I believe, is how 
our, our stories of transformation, our stories of repentance, they have value and they are important and they're, they're worthy of being heard. Well, we leave that scenario of, of the, the, the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar and then we jump into chapter 5 and King Nebu is nowhere to be seen. As a matter of fact, it's in excess of two decades, probably more like three and a half to four decades, depending upon how long King Nebuchadnezzar lived. Later, when we jump into Daniel chapter 5, can you say turbocharged subject changer? All right? I mean, that's exactly what is taking place here. And if you remember back to Daniel chapter 2, that Daniel. I hope I don't use King Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to be really... When you got different kings, it's awful difficult sometimes to not use them interchangeably. So most of the time we're going to be talking about Belshazzar today, all right? Uh, I apologize if I put King Nebu in there instead. But I do mean King Nebu now. King Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel chapter 2, there's, there's a dream that he has that Daniel interprets for him about this, this statue that has a head of gold and that's his kingdom. And then follow that by the shoulders, kind of the, the chest of... Of, of silver, and that is the kingdom of the, the Medes and the Persians that is coming. Well, I'm going to tell you something. The fulfillment of that is knocking at the door for Babylon, all right? Now, we're looking at Daniel chapter 5, and we're not going to read through all of it. We just don't have time for it. So, to help us out here, we've got to get some of the characters straight, specifically Belshazzar. Now, do not get confused. Yes, Daniel, when he came to Babylon as an exile, his name was changed to Belshazzar, okay? This is not him. We're talking Now, he will come into the story. Daniel will. But we're talking about Belshazzar. Now, something you're going to see in this that's a little confusing as you read through chapter 5 is the scripture says that he's King Nebuchadnezzar's son. He is not his biological son. He is a king, actually about four kings before Belshazzar even enters the scene in any way whatsoever. So when it calls him his son, his father, it's using it figuratively like his forefather. A king before him. All right, your fathers, that sort of thing. So keep that in mind. Actually, Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus. And Nabonidus, interestingly enough, is four kings removed from Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabonidus, according to not just, well, he doesn't even enter the story here. But remember, we have contemporary writing from this time. Mora Moore gets discovered by archaeologists all the time. All right? And Nabonidus was someone who was the king in Babylon who spent 10 years away from Babylon. And while he was away doing some things, there's a little bit of debate about all he's doing. But one thing that's not debated is he was fighting. Fighting other kings. If you're going to keep your nation on top, that includes war. And Nabonidus, while he was gone, he left his son, Belshazzar, in charge back in the capital. All right, so that's why, as you're going to see me, Belshazzar the king, he's, he's not really the king. He's just in charge there. And let me tell you something else. As we've already kind of looked at when I told you about the statue, times in Babylon weren't good. All right? Belshazzar's dad, Nabonidus, was less than two days' march away with his armies battling the armies of Persia. Okay? Persia that wants to overthrow the kingdom of Babylon. All right. So, times are not good. 
that makes us wonder why, when we look to the first part of this chapter, this is taking place. A rival kingdom is at the door, ready to beat the door down. So what is Belshazzar doing back in the capital? Having a party. Let's party. It's party time, people. And I don't know if he, what he's thinking with this. I don't know if it's more along the lines of Solomon when he wrote in Ecclesiastes, eat, drink, for what? Tomorrow we die. All right? Uh, I don't know if he's kind of thinking that. Uh, why? It's, there's a battle less than two days march away. Why are they feasting? Why are they doing this? Was, was Belshazzar trying to unify the leaders because he knew times were about to get tough? Or was it just simply this, one last party? I mean, we're going down. We might as well go down with a smile on our face, all right? So let's party, party. Okay, we don't know exactly why this is taking place. But they are partying, and Belshazzar is at the head of this party. And he brings a bunch of together people together to do this, and the wine is flowing, folks. I mean, it, it, they're partying, okay? Now, in the midst of it, Belshazzar calls an order out for something to take place. He calls for the sacred stolen utensils of the temple in Jerusalem to be brought in to party with. All right? Now, keep in mind, kings before him, five, four or five kings before him, King Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered Judah, took everything of value from that and that place and brought it to Babylon. Part of what he brought was the, the valuable things in the temple in Jerusalem. Belshazzar calls for these to be used in the party. This is an interesting thing. King Nebuchadnezzar, for all of his great pride and, and foolishness, you know, he never used those holy articles, holy utensils, whatever you want to call them. He, he left them in storage. And, and, and for some reason, even with his great pride, he refrained from using them. And yet Belshazzar calls for them to be brought out. And not only were they brought out, they were filled with wine, these holy goblets, whatever you want to call them. And they were used to toast, what? The gods of gold, silver, stone, and wood. So let's just think about this for a moment. These holy articles were used to toast the idols that Belshazzar and everyone else there were expecting to defend them from Persia. These idols that they made with their own hands. You know what they were doing in the process? Belshazzar was spitting in the eye of God. It's exactly what he was doing. He, in such a way that even King Nebuchadnezzar, in, in his great pride, never did. Now, I'm definitely not asking for a hand to be raised this time, okay? I am willing to bet that no one here in this assembly right now has ever been to a gathering that ended with the arrival of a dad or a mom or both. I think we had a name for these gatherings back in, in high school. Was there a name for that? Party, maybe? Something like that? And, and dad and mom. Now, now if, if you were ever in that situation, you might have found something out about having the fear of God put into you. Okay? Why don't you look? We're going to read these. Daniel 5, beginning of verse 5. Like I said, the party's going on here, okay? 
and the finger of God shows up. It says, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now, let me give you something right here. Verse 6 is the definition of fear. All right? Incredibly descriptive. Remember, Daniel's writing this. Okay. okay. The king, then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. Just a picture of composure. Isn't that right? Now, this isn't the first time that the finger of God makes an appearance in Scripture. Um, you might remember back, oh, just, you know, a few hundred years, millennium before this, when a guy by the, name, by the name of Moses, along with his brother Aaron, along with their God, God showed up in Egypt, and there were ten plagues. And Pharaoh had, the, had his own magical advisors, if you will, okay? And for the first, first couple of plagues or so, the magicians on a much smaller scale were able kind of to do what, what Aaron and Moses were doing. And then it got to the point that they could not do what God was doing through Aaron and Moses. And what did they say to Pharaoh? They said, uh, sir, this is the finger of God. Okay? Now, and if that isn't enough, you can look a little bit later, a little bit later near the end of the book of Exodus, and it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant that was built and how the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, were placed in that Ark of the Covenant. And they were written by the finger of God. And then, of course, there's the F5 tornado that's called the finger. Oh, wait, that's Twister. Sorry. Sorry about that. Some of you people need to watch good movies, all right? It's a great movie. I saw that movie. I said, I'm a, I'm a, have I ever been a call, accused of a turbocharged subject changer? Okay. Um, surely not. But when I watched that movie, I said, one day I'm going to have a vehicle with very big tires on it. Okay. Okay. Now, let's circle the wagons back, though, all right? Even in that movie, even in that movie, that statement of an F5 tornado being the finger of God is, 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 is uttered with an understanding of incredible power, all right? And this hand shows up, and these words go on the wall. Belshazzar is literally losing it in front of everybody, and he immediately calls for help. Immediately. Now, this will look a little bit like a little bit like Daniel chapter two. This is it's, it's we maybe we've kind of seen this before, where you have a king upset, and he calls for the wise men to come help him. And I'm telling you, these wise men in Babylon worthless, okay? They never, I mean, you take Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the group, these guys are just a cluster of nothing, okay? I mean, they never helped out when there was help needed, when help was really, really needed. So he calls for them, and it's not that it's hard to read on the wall, it's, it's written as, I'm going to do my very best to pronounce here after a while, in Aramaic, and even the king, every one of them could read it. They just could not understand what it meant. They couldn't understand the significance of it. But a hand showed up out of nowhere without a body, thank you very much, and wrote it, okay? So there's something going on here. And really, really quickly, guess what? Everybody sobered up really, really fast. But it's not helping. And what happens next, long about verse 15, our first 10, is, is, is awesome because it's like the adults finally showed up, all right? 
It's like they, they finally entered the scene. And, and we see that the queen, the queen mother, shows up. Now, I know what you might be thinking. If you're reading this closely on your own, you're like, oh, wait a second. It's already said that Belshazzar's wives, his concubines, all those are there. So what's his, is this like the head queen or something? No, it has nothing to do with any of his wives or anything like that. This queen mother is the wife, the widow now, of King Nebuchadnezzar. She's still alive. She comes in, and she speaks to Belshazzar like someone would talk to a child. I think that's kind of how she sees him. She says, act like a king. Things are about to get tough. Now's the time to act like a king. She tells Belshazzar something else. She says two words. Now, This is what she meant. Said a few more words than that. But these are the words. Get Daniel. He served in the court of the king. And she'll make sure that Belshazzar hears that several times. The king. The king. You little make-believe punk king here. Okay, the king was King Nebuchadnezzar, my husband. And Daniel served in his court. Get Daniel. Why don't we read about it? Verses 11 and 12. This is the queen speaking. She says, There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king. Now keep in mind, he's not his father, but she's emphasizing it for a reason. The king appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, and Chaldeans, and diviners. This is because there was an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems. These were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So, the queen shows up. She puts Belshazzar in his place. Belshazzar's feeling a little chippy after that, I'm sure, because Daniel shows up after this, and you can read through it, and what you would see in the next few verses, if you read between the lines, is Belshazzar's condescending attitude toward Daniel. He reminds him very quickly, you're a captive, you're a slave, you're an exile, I'm a king. And then he, he interrogates him like a prisoner. And he says, I've heard this about you. I've heard that about you. I've personally heard. And he just goes on and on. And then he basically tells him after all of this, he says, if you can solve this for me, I will give you great reward. To be honest with you, as we turn to the next few verses, we see something. Daniel's not too impressed with the company either. Daniel's not impressed at all with this Belshazzar. Is quite different from his respect, his care for, his concern for King Nebuchadnezzar. Matter of fact, one commentator I read this week said this about Daniel. He said, Daniel's annoyance and dislike for this second-rate monarch are easily seen. And then what happens next is Daniel proceeds to take the king to school. specifically history class, okay? And this is, we're going to read about this, beginning with verse 17. 
It says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of the beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with dew with the dew of heaven, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this, but you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they've brought out the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, and wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand is your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now is the inscription that was written out. Mini, mini, tekil, eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the, mar- of the message. Mini. God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Well, in conclusion, this is what happens. The king gives Daniel his reward, which kind of is kind of strange. You're like, well, Daniel already said, keep the reward for yourself, and the king gives it to him, and he accepts it. Well, most likely Daniel knew, I mean, he knew what the inscription meant. He knew that this reward really meant nothing. I mean, you're going to give me power in your kingdom that you're going to have for the next few hours. Wonderful. That's great. Okay? So, Daniel receives the word, which means nothing, and... Belshazzar dies that night. That very night. The end. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Let's go home. I know what you might be thinking. You're thinking, this is kind of interesting, preacher. You know, I mean, kind of like history. And I will tell you this, the more that they uncover archaeologists the more cuneiform that they begin to understand from ancient times, the more they begin to see that everything we have written in our our word, our Bible, is backed up by history. And I love that. I absolutely, positively love it. This happened. Belshazzar lived. His kingdom fell. And it fell very abruptly. I like history, preacher, but what does it have to do? What can we learn 
What can we learn from Belshazzar? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know if there's a whole lot we can learn from Belshazzar except for don't do it. <laughs> I mean, just don't. I mean, there's nothing else about Belshazzar that we can gain from him except for, okay, kids, don't live like that. Okay, end of lesson. All right. So I don't know how much there is to learn from Belshazzar. Is there something though that we can learn from Daniel? Here's a question for you. Why did Daniel treat King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar so differently? He served in the court of both. Now, one acknowledged him and one did not. Why did he treat them so differently? And if you say he didn't, he absolutely did. He did not like this Belshazzar cat. I mean, he didn't, and he did not pretend to. Okay? Why did he treat them differently? I think it has a little something to do with his gift. He had an incredible gift, folks. He had an insight that even to this day, the wisest of the world's movers and shakers would be in awe of. He had a gift from God to see what would take place in the future, not just in individual. We're talking about world-scale type of future here, all right? And being able, by God, to do this gave him something that you and I do not have. It gave him the ability to see God's future judgment today. That's, That's what he had. Why does that matter? To us. It matters to us because of this. If you don't get anything else today, get this, please. Because if we're not careful, we have a tendency as believers in Christ to put ourselves in a place that we don't belong. And that place is a judgment seat. Listen closely. We do not have the insight or the right to disregard people and their value before God. Let me repeat that. We do not have the insight or the right to disregard people and their value before God. What do I mean by that? Sometimes it's hard to love people who don't love us back. Jesus put it this way. Jesus, near about the first year of his ministry or so, we find it right there smack dab in in the, the Sermon on the Mount, we call it, Jesus' longest, one of his longest recorded sermons. And, and this, is, this is what Jesus said in that. He said this. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, I was, I was posed, and boy, we can grow a whole, new, a whole nother route with that. I mean, you, put, you see what Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the place that they were in, you know? And they did show respect and concern for King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel didn't show up for Belshazzar. But Daniel had an insight that we don't have. A little more about that. 
I was asked at After Life Group um, a few weeks ago a question, and I'm not sure if I, after thinking about this and studying through this, I'm not sure if I gave the correct answer. And the question was this. We, we, we had spent a good portion of the evening talking about evangelism, how, how we all, all have been given an incredibly important responsibility of sharing the message of Jesus Christ with people. And this is an incredibly important... To, to, to just fathom that God in all his great and incredible power would include us in sharing the message of the word with people is just a humbling thing. And we talked about that. And I was asked by somebody within the group, I don't remember who it was, but I was asked, I was asked this, I was, I was asked, when, when do you, do you ever give up on someone? It's like you've told them, you know, they know you, you've told them the truth. You know, in love. And, and they, won't, they won't do anything about it. They won't receive it. They won't. Is, is there ever the time to just, just say, okay, I'm moving on? And we kind of talked about Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out two by two the first time. He said, if you go to a town and they reject your message, when you leave that town, you remember that? Shake the dust off your feet. Shake it off. And walk away. All right? Go to the next town. And we kind of looked at that. Like, Maybe he's kind of getting at that with that. But... I don't know, I might have given some pretty bad advice there because here's the point. I don't think I don't think we ever give up on someone. Meaning this. I'm not talking about going and beating them over the head with the gospel and continuing to do it when it's not working. What I mean is this is is never losing our compassion for them. And never losing the understanding that God loves them. And we don't know when the light of the gospel is finally going to open their heart up. We don't know when they're finally going to get it and respond and say, you know what, you've been telling me about that for years. and I think I'm getting it. We don't know. That is the point. And we cannot lose our passion for sharing Jesus with lost people because souls are at stake. You know, another thing Jesus said, now this was, this, was the, this was the end. This was very near the end, meaning before the cross. And Jesus said something that, just, that should pierce every one of our hearts. And before I tell you what he said, we need to come to an understanding of when he said it. Because that gives it, it, gives it, gives it its power. It was the Passion Week, and I'm so excited. JB and I are excited about the Passion Week because we're going to look very closely at that in the coming weeks as we build our way up to Easter, okay? And Jesus was just a single-minded focus on that cross. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, they were bowing down before him, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, highest. We know that didn't last, Okay? And you get to long about chapter 23 of Matthew, and what you find is Jesus pronouncing the woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And boy, I mean, he, he lays them out. I mean, he like, I mean, if they were in a fight, he was throwing haymakers, okay? And he's saying stuff like this. He's saying, he's saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you. You take so much care of the outside, but the inside's full of rot. You're nothing but you're nothing but like tombs filled with dead men's bones. You tie these heavy burdens upon people, but you won't lift a finger to lift those burdens yourself. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And he just goes on and on. And the way I've always pictured that, previous to quite a few years ago, was, 
like, man, he's like yelling it at him. Like, he's like, and they're like, ah, you know. Well, I watched something many years ago. Dad, I think, had the whole church watch at one point there at Altamont so many years ago. And it's, it's, a, it's basically the account of Matthew on screen. It doesn't take anything away from the book of Matthew. It doesn't add anything to it. It's just the words of the book of Matthew on screen. And they get to this part in this movie. And this is a long, I mean, it's four or five hours long. I mean, that might be, that's pretty long. Two, three hours. I don't know, it's been a while. But they get to this point and Jesus is pronouncing these woes. On the steps of the, the temple. And by the time, he, he's not screaming them. He's, he's saying them with tears coming down his face. And by the time he's through with them, he just is, is just physically exhausted. Because he loves these people so much. And he follows those woes with this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your your children and gather them together like, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And literally days later, he would die on a cross for them. That's how Jesus loves lost people in this world. And we can never, we're not Daniel. We don't know the end of everybody's story. Therefore, we never have the opportunity to stop loving them like Jesus. According to him, even those who persecute us. Why don't you stand with me? We've been given an incredible responsibility in this world to, to look like Jesus. That's what discipleship's all about. Discipleship isn't becoming a do-gooder. Discipleship is modeling our lives with the help of the Holy Spirit more and more after the life Jesus and treating people the way Jesus treated people, loving people the way Jesus loves people. If you're here today and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, He loves you. And He's calling out to you just like He did those people in Jerusalem saying, come home. Maybe today's the day that that happens. I went to um, a funeral a couple weeks ago. A lot of you were there. Karen Roper's funeral. Um, Pretty incredible woman. Um, Had the the privilege of getting to know her a little bit when I substitute taught over at Caney. Yeah, I came into that crazy place and substitute taught a little bit, guys. Brave person, huh? And she was always such a joy you know, in there, um, especially the first time. First time you go substitute somewhere, I don't care what you say. 
I don't care how old you are. You go in as a substitute, you're scared of those kiddos. Okay? You can say whatever you want. And she would say, give some advice. I mean, just a, just a sweetheart. And a woman who, who, who let the light of Jesus Christ show through her continually. And Dave Bycroft preached that. Um, and it was preaching. It, it was not giving a, you know, a eulogy or anything. It was preaching. And he, he, he said, basically, you know, this is, this is Karen's life. I mean, I can't help but preach. And he said something that, that kind of captured him. I'm probably going to have to start doing something along these lines in the future. He said this. He said, there's a lot of you here. And the reason you're here is because you knew Karen Roper. And she meant something to you. And he said, I want you to hear this very, very clearly. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have said your last goodbye to Karen Roper and you will never see her again. But if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, your reunion will be sweet because of him. And then he followed that with this. If you want to see Karen, but you don't know Jesus, it's a package deal. Okay? So get to know him. He said that because Karen's life exhibited that, but he also said it because Dave's a man who loves the lost. We are all to love the lost in that way because that's the heart of Jesus. Jesus. 